most of you know that I took a sabbatical last summer. I was gone for three months, and uh, just an amazing time. Uh, God did a lot of stuff in me, and nice thing is, as I headed off into my sabbatical, I wasn't in a bad place or in a ditch. I didn't hate my job. I, did, I wasn't looking for something else to do. I, I was just honestly excited about putting myself in a place and inviting God to do a work in me. And I didn't know what that work would be. I just said, bring it, and uh, I'll do my best to respond well to that. Well, as I came out of that sabbatical, um, God was stirring some things. And um, I, I wasn't quite connecting the dots until Kimberly uh, started sharing some things from a book that she's been reading. It's called Spiritual Rhythm. It's by a guy named Mark Buchanan. You guys probably know he's one of my favorite authors. Um, but it's a book about seasons. And uh, with that idea of seasons in mind, I started to think about spring. Now, obviously, all of us could be in a number of different seasons at any time in our life. But that spring idea, that kind of started to resonate with me. It, it started to represent how I felt as I was coming back to this community of faith and this mission. I want you to listen to how Mark describes this season and uh, just see if, if you might identify with this as well. He says, the first activity of spring is to wake up. It's to get up. It's to plunge in all senses wide. Dead things recycle as nutrients in spring. Dormant things shiver to life. Once awakened, there are certain things spring demands of us. Three in particular, plowing, planting, and cleaning. It's to break up hard soil and to take full advantage of God's renewing work. It's to sow seeds, scattering them widely and abundantly. And it's to clean and air those spaces that have become cluttered and stifled. Like that felt like what God was doing in me, doing some plowing and some planting and some cleaning. And I kind of feel like that's what God's doing at Fellowship Bible Church as well. It feels like though we've been around for 20 years, it feels like we're in this season of springtime and God is inviting us into this amazing new work, this new season of growth and change. Um, most of you have been a part of recent conversations around campus and facility and some of that kind of stuff, this ministry of expansion. But here's what we're going to do. We're, in some ways, we're going to press pause on that for the next five weeks. We're not going to be asking how can we as a corporate body in a facility make room for the mission of God, although that's very much something we're thinking about. We're going to ask a question like this. How can you and I personally make room for the mission of God in our lives? And that could mean something different for every single person in this room. But we want to ask and answer that question, invite God into that place and say, Lord, my life is yours. And I assume that you want to work in me and through me. So I'm saying, just make room. Somewhere in me, find that place where there needs to be some expansion, some adjustment, some transformation so that I can be better suited, better fit to do what you put me on this earth 
to do as your child. So that's where we're headed. We're going to talk about some plowing and some planting and some spring cleaning. This series is a little bit of a greenhouse for you and for me as we ask these important questions. At the heart of it, this idea of deep roots is uh, the idea that God has a great growth plan for you and for me. And usually it has very little to do with what we possess and how big things are and how popular we are and all that kind of stuff. It's usually something uh, far deeper. Uh, I do know this in terms of growth. It is absolutely at the heart of God for every one of his children. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. If you've ever just kind of wondered, I wonder what the will of God is for my life. We usually think about a job or a marriage or a, a home or something like that. I wonder what the will of God is for my life. It's that he would change you. That he would transform you from the inside out. And that it wouldn't happen in just a moment or a year or a decade, but over the course of your life, God would change you to look more and more and more like your Savior. That is the will of God for you and for me. So we're going to dedicate ourselves to finding and following God's lead in this incredible season of spring. Just allow him to do a great work. We've been uh, using an image. Uh, you can see it uh, right over here and a little bit of our uh, logo there with deep roots, this idea of a plant. And, and we might even think specifically about a potted plant. And again, as we were talking about our facility, we talked about growing to a place where our, our roots were beginning to bump into the edges of this container that God has given us as a campus. Now let's think about that personally. Let's think about the roots the spiritual roots in your life and in mine. Let's think about the containers that we have. It, it really relates to how we live, like your schedule, your priorities, your activities, like what you do and don't do, who you know, your relationships, all those kinds of things. Those are like the container that we live in. And maybe God wants to expand that. Maybe God wants to make some room in your life so that your roots can deepen. And here's what happens when roots deepen. Guess what happens above the ground? Man, there's expansion. There's fruit. There's influence. That's what we're going for over the next five weeks. We're going to look at the condition of our spiritual roots we're going to think about and prayerfully ask God to show us um, how's our fruit doing? Do, do we see evidence of not only God's presence in our life, but his activity there? That he's been growing us, using us in his mission. And then that flower pot idea, we want to get real practical and just think about everyday life and just go, is there, is there any way... And I think the answer is yes for all of us. It's just different for all of us. But what is that way in which God wants to sort of transplant your life into greater influence and have greater effect? We have a, a key passage that 
really serves as the, the core of this whole series. It's Colossians 2, 6, and 7. You can turn there. I think it's also uh, in your outline as well. And I'm going to do something a little bit different. I mean, since we're doing everything different this morning, let's just keep going, right? So uh, I'm going to ask somebody in this section right here, read from your outline Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Somebody, just anybody. Read loud. Go for it, Brian. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Awesome. Let that sink in. Somebody over here, read it again. Anybody? Awesome. We're told that this is the summary of the whole book of Colossians. Like all that Paul does with that little church, that new, young, immature church is packed into those two verses. Somebody over here, read it loud. Let's, let's hear it. Let this sink in, you guys. Hear it. Don't be shy. Man, there's a lot there. This is the essence of the Christian life. You really can kind of boil everything down to what Paul is saying to these people. One last time, somebody over here. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Awesome. So this is God's heart for every single person in this room. This is what God not just wants from you, this is what God wants for you. And in this passage, there's a command, there's a standard, and then there's a process of progress. And so let's just work through this quickly. Let's take in what Paul has for us here, and then let's kind of let this be the starting line for us as we head into this amazing season of spring. The command is walk in him. Walk in him. There's way more there than you or I could ever imagine. I did think about, we could have actually done the entire series just on these two verses. You might think I'd get old, but I'm telling you, there's, there is plenty here. But that, that phrase, walk in him, literally, because of what comes before it, would read, walk, which means to live your life in him, that is Christ Jesus the Lord. That's what he's called in that verse. More about that in just a minute. But let's not miss the fact that he instructs them and us to walk. Now, if that's a command, it must mean that it's possible for you and I to not do that. It must mean that this is not something that is just a reflex for a Christian, like you receive Christ and then you just walk. You don't even have to think about it. You just go on autopilot. You just do everything it is that God wants his people to do, right? Does anybody in here do that? 
How many of you have to get up every day and decide to walk with God? Anyone? Yeah, me too. So there is a volition about this, a conscious choice. And we talk about doing this together. Together is better, but here's something you and I need to remember. No one can walk your walk for you. We can help each other. We can support each other. We can pray for each other, encourage, challenge, correct, instruct, build up. But no one in this room can walk the Christian walk for anybody else. You and I have to choose to do that on our own. So with this idea of walking in mind, Paul uh, connects it with rootedness and development in Jesus and then with stability in the truth. And all of those things are references, pictures of growth of various kinds. Um, Now listen to Ephesians 4.15. We are, as God's people, to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You're going to find that, that these words in Colossians are very familiar as you read other letters of Paul. He borrows and uh, moves things around to different places. So there's a beautiful picture of growth. The thing that, that got my attention in, in study over the last couple of weeks around this was just these two little words, in him. It's words that we would just normally kind of blow right past. Well, of course, in him. Did you know that Paul uses that little phrase, either in Christ, in him, or in the Lord, 164 times in his few letters to the churches? That is the definitive way that Paul talks about you and I as Christ followers. I think, I think they're called Christians three times in the entire New Testament. But 164 times in Paul's letters, he says, here's what you are in him. You are in Christ and you better understand what that means because it's the key to all of life. We have to understand what that means. To be in Christ is to be united to Christ in a way that means to be in him. Let me read John John Stott's uh, description. To be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ as tools are in a box or our clothes in a closet, but to be organically united to Christ as a limb is to the body or a branch is in the tree. Can you remember some of those other passages we've read before about how we are related to Christ? It is this personal relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of his authentic followers. So we are to walk in him, connected to him, deriving life from him. There is an absolute utter dependence, probably far greater than any of us will ever even fully understand in this lifetime. But that is what we're commanded to do. Walk, live out our life in him. Now there's a standard for that walk. It comes right before the command. And he says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So we got to get at this phrase, Christ Jesus, 
the Lord and this idea of receiving him, what Paul is doing is he's pointing them back to their conversion. See, there was a time in every one of their lives and there's a time in every one of our lives where we were lost, dead in our sin, separated from God, fully relying upon ourselves, trusting in our own ability to be good or right or moral or righteous. And then somewhere in there, we went, wow, this isn't going to cut it. I'm never going to make it. I can't do this on my own. I actually need God to do for me what I can't do for myself. And so we cried out to him, literally begging for mercy. We just said in a whole lot of different ways, God, save me. That's the moment that Paul's pointing back to. See, I want you to remember that because that wasn't just this infantile kind of moment that you do once and then forever leave behind you as a, as a precious memory. That, that moment, how you saw Christ, that defines how you walk for the rest of your life. You'll never grow out of that. It always needs to define how you live. So it's interesting here when he says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, most of us just reading it in English would just kind of naturally go, oh, well, he's talking about by faith, right? You received Christ by faith, so walk by faith. And there are other places in the New Testament, even in Paul's letters, where he literally says that. So it's not as if he's not saying that, but I think he's saying something more. He's saying, as you received this specific person, Christ Jesus the Lord, and then you could put in parentheses, by faith, so walk in him. That is everything that he is as represented by this title. So it's not so much about how you received Christ that he's getting at here. It's about the Christ whom you received. And that's really reinforced by the whole book of Colossians. See, there was a, a, a heresy that was going around in Colossians that was beginning to distort the identity of Christ. And there were people who had entrusted their lives to Christ, but they were getting to buy into the idea that the Christ that I thought I knew, he's not really enough. I've got to somehow supplement that. I, there's, there's some new secrets that I need to pick up so that I can really get everything from God that I want to get. So Paul's correcting that. That's why he uses this phrase, Christ Jesus the Lord. He never uses that phrase anywhere else in his letters. He has similar phrases, but he never uses it exactly that way. So why is that? Well, I had some thoughts about receiving Christ. No one receives Christ on their own terms. And that title won't allow for that. No one receives their own preferred version of Christ. We don't get to make that up. He just is what he is. Christ Jesus the Lord. He can only be received completely as is on his terms. Now, who is this? Christ Jesus the Lord. Um, earlier in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, 
This is a good signal for us that he defined who this Christ is. And so when he says Christ Jesus is the Lord, they would automatically go, oh, that guy, that one. So I'm going to read this to you. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Listen, this is who you receive. Now, you may not have known all of this at the time. This might not have been in the front of your mind, but this is the one that you received that you're supposed to walk in for the rest of your life. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. First, the top. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, including you, including me, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is who you received. And you did receive him by faith, no doubt. But because of who he is, you are in an orientation to him, a posture toward him. He is up here and you are down here and that will never, ever change in all of eternity. He condescends that we could even know him. Uh, Professor Bob Utley says this, salvation is not a product believers possess, but a person who possesses them. So Paul's standard for walking or living out our life in Christ Jesus the Lord is based upon his divine identity and our orientation to that identity at the time of our conversion. So the posture and the position that you you and I were in when we cried out to God for mercy, that posture, that orientation, that is to color all of life, everything that we do. I had this thought, it is tempting to recruit Jesus to take care of our death while maintaining control of our life. Can you relate to that? Like, I want to trust him for my eternity afterwards. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. So I'll trust him for my death, and then I'll take it from here until I get there. That is biblically unthinkable. There's nothing at all in the scriptures that would support that idea, and yet we live that out day in and day out to some degree. We have to fight that. Listen to how Paul says When he thinks about his day of conversion, here's what he said. I have been, Galatians 2.20, crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life I live now, today, years after my conversion, the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God, Christ Jesus the Lord. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There it is, the pattern, the standard. I died. He's alive in me. And I live every moment of every day. I aspire to that. Nobody does that perfectly, but that's what we aspire to. To receive Christ Jesus the Lord is to receive him as the supreme object of the soul's love, one commentator said. As the imperial guide of the soul's activities, as the only physician of the soul's diseases. This is not merely the reception of biblical doctrines into the intellect, although that's so common in the South, isn't it? But rather the reception of Jesus himself into the heart as its moral monarch. It's a great, great way to say it. So we have a command. We have a standard for that command. And then we have this beautiful process of progress It's basically a a description of what it means to walk well. And Paul uses four metaphors. It's sort of humorous um, because kind of on the face, they have nothing to do with one another. It's like like one's agricultural, one's construction, one's legal, and then one's kind of just out in nature. Um, But they're very effective. Uh, These four metaphors of walking well, one is being rooted like a fruitful tree. Um, we uh, heard that earlier out of Psalm 1. The second is being built up, and I want you to imagine a skyscraper under construction. We've seen a few of those in downtown Nashville. That's a picture that he uses. Um, Being established like a legal decree, like a verdict. That's an image that he uses. And then finally, uh, he uses the image of a, a river that's flooding its banks. So those are four metaphors, and they're all, and I'm not trying to be all technical here, but they're all participles, so any grammarians will appreciate that. Um, A a participle is verbal, like it has verbal action associated with it, but it modifies like an adjective. So it tells you something about something else. So all of these participles modify what it means to walk. That's the relationship here. Now, what's really interesting is you dig down into these, you see that in grammar, they are different forms. And and those forms have meaning. We'll get at that here in just a second. But again, we've got rooted, built up, established, and abounding. That word rooted is a perfect passive participle. And here's all that means. A perfect means it happened in the past, and it has ongoing effect. So there's something that happened in the past. You were rooted when you received Christ Jesus the Lord, but there is this ongoing effect that you and I need to cultivate, this rootedness that we continue to develop. What does rootedness mean? I thought of two quick illustrations. One is in John 6, Jesus was preaching, and uh, he said some hard things. And 
his disciples, not the 12, but other people who would have said they were disciples, they began to leave. They just walked away. It's like, hey, sorry, you just crossed the line. I can't go with you any further. He looks at his 12 and he says, so do you guys want to go too? And sweet Peter speaks up and he basically says this, where are we going to (laughs) go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So even if we did walk away, we'd just be wandering. So we're going to stay. That's rootedness. That's when you come to the place where you realize there's nowhere else to go. I'm sticking with him. I had a personal experience like that in my own life. I came to Christ in high school, and I was a mess for a long time, probably still am in some ways. But um, I, one of the things I struggled with was trying to be good enough for God. I knew that salvation was by grace through faith, but I always wanted to just make sure I had these things in my life where I could say, see, God, see, I really am worth saving. But I failed again and again and again and again. So I just knew I had nothing. And finally, I came to this place. And I literally said this to God. Jesus, I know I can't save myself. I know that. And I also know that if you don't save me, I won't be saved. So I'm just going to trust in you. I don't have anywhere else to go. And I know that you can do for me what I can't do for myself. And I'm telling you guys the freedom in that. I don't live perfectly. I struggle still, but that's settled. It's rooted. And I can build on that, which is that next participle, to be built up. And built up and established kind of go together. The grammar form there is a present passive. So that means it's something that's happening currently, and it's an opportunity for us to be participants or to cooperate with that work that's going on. So God is building up and establishing, but we are cooperating with that. He talks about being built up in him and established in the faith. So it's not your faith. So it's not a personalized thing. It's the faith. It's the body of truth that you and I must receive if we are to enter into relationship with God. God is establishing his people in that. And you or I can either cooperate or resist. So that's an ongoing work. And then there is this final participle, abounding, and abounding in thanksgiving. And that is a present active participle. So the first three were passive. That means sort of God's doing something to me, in me. And this active means this is something I do. So... I'm rooted, I'm built up, I'm established, and I say thanks. That's what I do. That's my active response to the work of God in my life. God doesn't do that for me. I'm commanded as I'm walking in Christ Jesus the Lord to do so in gratitude. That is the atmosphere of my Growth. 
Paul frequently cited gratitude as one of the indicators of Christian health. So if you and I are lacking gratitude, that's sort of like you've got a fever. You probably ought to go get that checked. That term abounding, I love that because it is that idea of a, of a river flooding its banks. Our thanksgiving should be so prominent, so overflowing in us, it's literally like a flood. that The banks can't hold it any longer. And notice there's no qualifiers there. It's not just in those great, wonderful seasons where everything is going smooth and easy and comfortable and convenient. No, it's like all the time. In fact, just jot this down, Ephesians uh, 5.20 and 1 Thessalonians 5.18 both basically say, give thanks all the time. That's your and I's response to a good God who is at work. Um, and I have found that it's, it's very easy to lose sight of God's goodness to me because I can get distracted by my circumstances. And so there's a real good habit, a good spiritual discipline of taking stock of the abundance that I have in Christ. And obviously, material things could be included in that, but it's way bigger than that. Remember last two weeks ago, life is not found in the abundance of our possessions, right? No, it's found in him. Uh, back to this book that Kimberly was reading, and I, I'm sure I will read it at some point. But... Uh, he writes this uh, related to gratitude. Ever since the fall, as in the original rebellion, we've tended towards scarcity thinking. Indeed, the serpent incited humankind's rebellion by stirring up a crisis around the threat of scarcity. He distracted Adam and Eve from the abundance God provided and got them pining for the one thing God withheld, a tree. You haven't got enough, was his opening ploy. It's worked pretty well for him ever since. I want to encourage us, even as we're going through this season of springtime, to pause and to notice and to give thanks. And, and to cultivate this heart of awareness over how good God has been to us. Well, let me wrap up with a summary. Uh, an old pastor, F.F. F. Bruce, wrote this. Now the teaching which has been delivered to you has Christ Jesus our Lord himself as its center and its circumference. Therefore, let your life be lived in him. See that you are rooted in him, built up on him, in keeping with what you have been taught, and overflow with gratitude. Now, it's 40 degrees outside. We are in the dead of winter, but I tell you what, guys, it's springtime in this church. We've got an amazing opportunity over the next several weeks to plow, to plant and to clean house so that God will have all the room that he needs in our lives to not only work in us, but through us and change this city, change our neighborhoods, 
chains our friends and family. So, as we wrap, um, for the so what, um, I'm going to sort of give it to you, if that's okay. You can personalize it however you want to, but um, we'll probably keep saying this. We're dedicating ourselves to finding and following God's lead in this incredible season of expansion. So our so what in response to this beautiful picture of life in Christ is to dedicate ourselves to finding and following God's lead, whatever it might be. Like, let's just give him wide open berth, just Lord, whatever you want. My answer is yes. I'm going to let you do in me and through me. Specifically, three things we want to ask you to do. Earnestly pray, boldly prepare, and joyfully invest. When you hear that word invest, honestly, the last thing I want you to think about is money. Because there's way more to you than your money. God wants all of us. And if all we do at the end of this series is build a building, (laughs) it's an utter failure. If we don't change, but we have a big building, it's a failure. Let's ask God to do more than that. Let's ask God to expand us and change the world. All right? Stand with me. Let me pray.